This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. And with that vote, President Donald Trump became the only president in our country's history to be impeached for a second time. Ten Republicans joined their Democratic colleagues for the vote, making Trump's impeachment bipartisan. Article of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives of the United States of America in the name of itself and of the people of the United States of America against Donald John Trump, President of the United States of America, in maintenance and support of its impeachment against him for high crimes and misdemeanors. Article 1, incitement of insurrection. Trump was impeached on a single charge of incitement of insurrection for his role in the riot by his supporters that left five dead in the Capitol ransacked. And his second impeachment trial will be the first ever to take place after a president leaves office, creating a novel legal question that Trump might use in his defense. Joining me is an expert on impeachment law, Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri Law School. Looking at the Constitution itself, did the framers intend to allow a president to be tried for impeachment after his term ends? Well, let's be honest here. I don't think the framers anticipated every possible contingency. We often think that they were sort of superhuman and sat there in the blazing Philadelphia summer heat and thought through all the possible outcomes. And I don't think they did. But I think we can say some things about not so much even what they specifically intended, but what the structure of the Constitution pretty plainly suggests. First, the point of the impeachment remedy is dual. The primary purpose is to ensure that if a president qualifies himself in some way through really horrible personal conduct or shows that he is a danger to the republic through his public behavior, that he can be removed short of an actual election. The framers debated about that. Some of them thought, well, golly, an election's enough. But the majority said, no, we need some other remedy. So that certainly is the primary point of impeachment, but it's not the only one. They were deeply steeped in the learning about the classical republics, about Greek democracies, about the Roman Republic. And one of the lessons that they drew from their focus on classicism was concerned that democracies and republics are vulnerable to the wild demagogues. And they talk about it all the time, the concern that such a person would arise and represent continuing danger to the republic. And I think it is that concern, as much as any other single thing, that led them to include the disqualification. But the framers recognized that a sufficiently dangerous person, a person with sufficiently autocratic tendencies, a person with sufficiently strong following, a person with sufficient lack of scruple could pose an ongoing danger, even though you removed him from office. And that's why they put in the disqualification remedy. It's not punishment, it's prophylaxis. It's trying to make sure this person never troubles the republic again. And it would be a very strange notion to have a constitutional provision with that objective that could be thwarted simply because either the impeached person just resigned really fast before he could be impeached or tried, or alternatively, in Mr. Trump's case, that he reserved the worst of his behavior until a period shortly enough before his departure from office that you couldn't try him. 
I think it's pretty clear if you look at the structure of the Constitution, the purpose of the framers, that trying him after he leaves office is entirely consistent with what they had in mind. Of course, there's never been a situation like this before. But are there other cases in our history that would support the Senate's power to put Trump on trial even after his term ends? Yes, there have been precedent for this. Indeed, the very first impeachment that ever happened very early on, 1797 and then 1798, Senator William Blunt was a Tennessee senator and land speculator who engaged in the scheme essentially to transfer parts of then Spanish Florida and the Louisiana Territory to the British. Word got out about that. And when it got back to Washington, the House immediately impeached him. And shortly thereafter, the Senate expelled him. But then, of course, there was a matter of impeachment, and they went on to try him later on. Now, he was acquitted in the end. But it's generally believed that the reason for his acquittal had nothing to do with the timing of the impeachment or the trial, but with the Senate's decision that it had no jurisdiction over a senator. That is to say, senators are not the civil officers who are covered by the Constitution's impeachment provisions. So we have a precise example of exactly this timing, and we have a somewhat even more pronounced one in the impeachment of Secretary of War Belknap during the Grant administration in the 1870s, where Belknap, the Secretary of War, he was corrupt and he sold an Indian agent position for money, was found out and was clear that he was about to be impeached. He went over to the White House and immediately resigned in the hope of forestalling the impeachment, but the House impeached him anyway. Went over to trial in the Senate, and although, again, he managed to escape conviction the Senate explicitly considered the question of whether or not it retained jurisdiction over him for trial, and it voted you know, by a material majority that it did have jurisdiction over him, even though it impeached him after he left office entirely. There are some scholars who argue that the Senate can't try Trump after he leaves office. So this might be left up to the Supreme Court. But would the court even consider this? Well... There you're asking me to read Supreme Court tea leaves, and that's more important to read their minds, and and that's probably beyond my power. But let's put it in some sort of procedural context. When might a court try to intervene, or when might Mr. Trump ask a court to intervene? There are two possibilities. One, he could try to seek an injunction in federal district court, presumably in the District of Columbia, before the Senate trial, asking the judge to prevent or to order the Senate not to proceed. Now, I suspect the Senate, you know, they're not going to probably feel obliged to do much in response to a district court judge order. And in theory, such an order could be appealed to the Supreme Court. I very, very, very much doubt that any district court would even entertain such a lawsuit or certainly have the presumption to try to enjoin a Senate impeachment trial of the president or former. The more likely possibility would be if, and frankly, it's not that likely, given the composition of the Senate, he were to be tried and convicted, my guess is that he would try to bring that up to a court, presumably starting again in the district court, and try to claim that the Constitution doesn't permit such trials. And the courts might or might not even entertain the question. They might simply decide that it's non-justiciable, as we say, or that even if they consider it in the first instance, that it's really a separation of powers kind of question a political question, and that particularly since the Constitution so very plainly places the impeachment remedy in the purview of Congress, that they're going to give immense deference to the Senate's interpretation of its part of the impeachment role. So yeah, it's possible the courts could get into this. One doesn't like to predict that kind of thing. My bet, if I had to bet, would be that such a challenge would be unsuccessful. Thanks, Frank. That's Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri Law School.
Stephen Breyer has been a justice on the Supreme Court for 26 years. And at 82 years old, Breyer is the oldest member of the court. Now that Democrats have won control of the U.S. Senate, it will be easier for President-elect Joe Biden to fulfill his campaign promise of appointing the first black woman to a Supreme Court seat. And so progressives are putting pressure on Breyer to retire now and follow in the footsteps of Justices Byron White and David Souter, who gave the last two Democratic presidents a Supreme Court seat to fill in their first year in office. Joining me is constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Are Democrats now in the seat that Republicans have been in for four years as far as judicial nominations? I think the tables certainly have turned. I don't think it's quite the same just because, you know, I don't think there's ever been quite the same effort on the part of Democrats to prioritize judgeships and judicial confirmations as Republicans. And also, we haven't had the lead up. I mean, one of the things that really made the Trump impact so dramatic was that Senate Majority Leader McConnell had been remarkably successful in denying open seats to President Obama so that when Trump came to office, there were already a number of vacancies to fill. I think for President-elect, soon to be President Biden, that's going to be more a question of how many judges who are currently active now will take senior status because there's a Democratic president and at least nominal Democratic control of the Senate. Why is the D.C. Circuit seat that Judge Garland is leaving to become attorney general, why is that being eyed as a potential springboard for a future Supreme Court justice? Well, I think because it has been in the past. I mean, you know, we have Justice Kavanaugh was a D.C. Circuit judge. Chief Justice Roberts was a D.C. Circuit judge. Justice Ginsburg was a D.C. Circuit judge. Justice Thomas was a D.C. Circuit judge. I mean, this is historically the the stepping stone to the Supreme Court. You know, most folks call it the second highest court in the land. And so I think the idea is that whoever President Biden puts in that seat is probably going to be at the very top of his shortlist for filling the next seat that opens on the Supreme Court. President-elect Biden hasn't even been sworn into office yet. And there are already people calling for Justice Stephen Breyer to retire In fact, as soon as it was clear that the Democrats had won the Georgia election, why the rush? Well, I think given what happened with Justice Ginsburg and Justice Barrett, I think that tempers are understandably short and that there's a very real concern that opportunities shouldn't be passed up when it comes to a chance for Justice Breyer to to be replaced by someone who's younger, someone who shares his progressive views, perhaps maybe more progressive. And so I think the concern is that even though Justice Breyer might look at the current political climate and say, well, I can wait a bit. I can wait at least until next year. You know, a 50-50 Senate is no guarantee. I mean, all it takes is one set of circumstances where a seat opens up in a state with a Republican governor, and all of a sudden the Senate could tilt back to Republican control. So for folks who view the Supreme Court as this critical political prize, now's the moment for Justice Breyer, who, you know, we should say, I mean, has been on the court for nearly three decades, has been a federal judge for over four decades. You know, now's the time for him to step aside and and let someone younger come along. He's in the same situation that the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in, in that after all his years on the bench, he's just become the leader of the liberal justices. Is that a pull for him as it was for RBG? And I think only Justice Breyer could answer that. But, you know, just looking at this from the outside, one of the remarkable things that, you know, came late to Justice Ginsburg in her career was the power in at least a handful of cases to actually assign the majority opinion. 
you know, it's hard to imagine when Justice Breyer is going to have that power because the liberal bloc of which he's now the senior member has one fewer justice in it. And the only way that it's, one imagines that the progressives are going to be able to create five, four majorities in the court going forward is to bring the chief justice along with them. So I suspect there are a number of considerations animated with Justice Breyer's calculation. I just think that's probably pretty low on the list. There's been a lot of reporting about President Barack Obama setting up a lunch with RBG to mention retirement, which obviously failed to convince her. Is maneuvering to get a justice to retire a thing that's often done? I think it depends on what we mean by maneuvering. I think there's always a you know, very, very sort of informal back channel avenue of communication between justices and White Houses that are sympathetic to their political views. You know, I think the lunch between President Obama and then Justice Ginsburg was probably about as close as we come to any kind of direct contact. And even there, you know, all reports suggest that he never asked her to resign, that, you know, it never came up directly. But, I mean, June, the reality is Justice Breyer is a very savvy guy. I don't think he needs to be told that a vacancy on the Supreme Court and a chance to fill his seat would be a huge priority and potentially a huge boon to the Biden administration. I think this is just a question of his own calculus and his own analysis of what the best timing is for him. Some might say that Justice Kennedy was maneuvered to leave the court by promises made to him about his replacement by the Trump administration. Might that happen here as well? There are allegations about what Justice Kennedy was told and what he might even have communicated to the, the Trump White House that I don't know if it's ever been substantiated. I doubt that here. I think Justice Breyer, you know, is the kind of person, the kind of jurist who's not going to have incredibly strong views about particular people as his successor, as opposed to just who should be choosing that successor under what circumstances. And I think especially in this context, you know, where President Biden, with a vacancy on the Supreme Court, would have a chance to add a real measure of diversity to the court in a way that his predecessor hasn't. I suspect that from Justice Breyer's perspective, he's probably willing to just give the new administration the benefit of the doubt on this. Let's talk about some of the people who've been discussed as potential Supreme Court nominees. Biden has said that he will nominate a black woman to the court. And one of the names that comes up all the time and at the top of the list, maybe, is Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. She's a former Breyer clerk, actually. Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, I mean, Judge Jackson, I think, is a very highly regarded federal district judge in Washington. She's been on the bench since the Obama administration. The folks who have practiced before her, her colleagues, they all speak very highly of her. I think one of the thoughts actually is that with Merrick Garland potentially leaving his seat to become the attorney general, you know, one possibility is actually to nominate Judge Jackson to the D.C. Circuit first until and unless there's a Supreme Court vacancy just so that she can further develop her appellate chops. But, you know, I think she's one of the people – she's at the top of the shortlist, I think, for a very good reason. She's highly regarded. She's incredibly smart. She – has written some pretty impressive opinions in her time on the district court. So I think that's why a lot of folks are paying attention to her. That is similar to what happened with Judge Amy Coney Barrett. They put her on the Seventh Circuit. Well, I, just, I, mean, I think, I mean, they've done this a lot. I mean, so Justice Souter was on the First Circuit for a short period of time before he was nominated. Justice Thomas was on the D.C. Circuit for a short period of time. Chief Justice Roberts was on the D.C. Circuit for a short period of time before he was nominated. I, I think there's just this mentality, for better or for worse, that one of the easiest ways to sort of defeat experience objections in the Supreme Court confirmation process is to have nominees who have at least some period of time of experience 
as federal circuit judges, because at least in some superficial ways, the jobs aren't all that different. I guess I'll just say, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those who doesn't think that being a circuit judge is or should be a prerequisite to being a Supreme Court justice, but at least of late, that's increasingly become the, the norm. Another name being floated is California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, and her name's also being floated as Solicitor General. What do we know about her? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, similar vein as um, Judge Jackson, Justice Kruger has prior government experience. She's been in the executive branch. She has some really, really impressive credentials. Her work on the California Supreme Court has been highly regarded. Um, and you have the added, uh, the added value of a little more geographical and experiential diversity, you know, having a state Supreme Court justice, not into the Supreme Court. It's been a while since that happened. Um, having a Californian on the court, you know, Justice Kennedy's departure left the court bereft um, of anyone from the nation's biggest state. So, you know, I think this is why most discussions of President Biden's first Supreme Court nominee end up with Ketanji Brown Jackson and Leandro Kruger because they're just so, you know, such compelling candidates on their own. Have you heard any other names being floated? Those, you know, those are the two you hear most often. Um, you know, I think there are some, uh, the, there are the sort of the wilder names that I think are not realistic, like folks who think maybe Michelle Obama could be on the Supreme Court or Stacey Abrams. But at the end of the day, I think this is really probably a two-horse race, at least for now. So looking at the court and the way it, the way it is right now, do you think it's a good idea for Justice Breyer to retire? I'm not sure. I, I don't know what, what to do with a good idea. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 think, I think Justice Breyer is going to be under a lot of pressure to step aside in favor of, you know, a younger nominee, and for good reason. I, mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of folks who look at, you know, the sort of the, the unfortunate fate of Justice Ginsburg um, as a lesson to be avoided, um, as an example not to repeat. And so, you know, I think the, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Justice Breyer, and I think, you know, given where we are, it might make a lot of sense um, for, you know, President Biden to be able to put uh, a nominee on the Supreme Court sooner rather than later, since we have no idea what's going to happen to the Senate, either in the next 18 months or even in the, you know, 2022 midterms. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Steve. That's constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. I just want to note that Justice Breyer himself has not given any indication of when he wants to retire. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.